From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. We're back again with Mark Fozlowski from Childress Vineyards in Lexington, North Carolina. This is part two of our conversation with Mark. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we definitely recommend you go check out that episode as well. Wine class with the Wine Mouths is back. Jesse and Jessica talk to us about the flavor and aroma compound Rotundo. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we're back with Mark Brzozowski. Um, So Mark, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned quality before. So let's talk a little bit about the quality and how you work to make sure that you have the best quality wine that you can produce. Well, you know, I think in any vineyard, you, you try and get the best grapes uh, you know, that, you know, it's, we're a very culty kind of business. You know, the wine people is very, very geeky. You know, there's a lot of consumers, but if people that work in it get, I mean, they're just over the top sometimes. So we love to, uh, to get it tweaked and adjusted to exactly where we want it. Often the weather doesn't cooperate. So I'd say that the, the most difficult thing that I see in, in people making mistakes out there not, that, that I don't think we always make it at Childress only because we've been doing it longer is that you can only make a wine commensurate with the grapes you get. And, and so on the, and we learned over time that on the years that are really spectacular, we will overproduce and put wine away. Like we still have some 15s that we haven't released. Oh, wow. Oh. And, and, and it's just when you bring them out, and you and you send them out to your wine club or use them for events, and they've been and they've had eight years in the bottle or more. People are like, "Wow!" And, and so some people might think, "Oh, this didn't sell," or whatever. <laughs> but what we do is we overproduce, and then and then you get certain years where where you have these challenges, uh, and and that's why we put in the counter pressure line so we can make sparkling wines mm. that are more affordable. We still do method champenoise. In fact, Monday we disgorge champagne all day, and so we'll disgorge it as we need it. Until so you leave it as long as you can on yeast, uh, but you can make beautiful method champenoise, and they don't have to be ripe grapes. You know, you pick them underripe. Right. So you look at the year, um, and and so people always say, "Well, how do you know? When do you know if it's going to be a reserve?" Well, you know it's going to be a reserve before you pick the grapes, because you don't pick it, pick the grapes and say, "Oh, I'll pick these. They have mediocre ripeness. Let me just hope for the best." And all of a sudden, you put it in barrels, and then five months later, you go, "Wow, this stuff is so good." It just doesn't work that way, you know. You you know ahead of time. Yeah, you've been paying attention to the season. You know, exactly. The We're out there walking every day. I walk through the vineyard. I you know driving through and stop and walking. So we know we're watching the weather. You, you, and more than anything, you know the history of that vineyard. You know what it did the year before and the year before that and the year before that. So we understand how all that stuff works. So um, what, we, what, what we want to emphasize is that, and some people say. Uh, something like, oh, um, you make that wine for so-and-so, that's a children's wine, and it's their label. And it's not. 
You know, nothing, you know, like when Petroni won that best beverage with, I, I was thrilled to death. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's, it's as good as us winning it. You know, that it, it shows that, hey, we're, we're taking every you know, possible angle we can to make that product better for them. Um, so, the, so, you know, and a lot of it's attention to detail, a lot of it's experience, you know, that, that we, you know, I'm a little, I'm older, of course, and, and have been there before. It's not that I didn't make a mistake. Well, hopefully I made all my mistakes in the past and that you adjust it and see that. And I do that with people, people bring in grapes and they're saying, oh, what we want to do is this and this and this. And I have to explain to them, you know, like a, explain to you to the mother at the baseball field that this kid's not going to be a good baseball player. I said, listen, this will make a great rosé. It's cab. It's 19 bricks. It just don't make a mediocre red wine. You're not going to be proud of. Make a beautiful rosé. Let's really make a good rosé with some nice body to it. And, and, you know, and if you want to get something else, you got to, you got to work towards the grapes. And it forces the people to, uh, to, to do, you know, to, grow a better product so so quality is is um every you know we emphasize quality doesn't matter what wine you're making you want it to be quality of course a lot of people think your quality is your best you know your ripest red your biggest franc or whatever it's not true you want that other one to be as as well made yeah and it's all about working with what you're given like what comes out of the season and then making the best wine you can out of yeah it. and it always i always regretted the fact that uh, you know the vineyard manager um once he's done, he hands off to the winemaker, and then it's his. He's um, relieved of the pressure, and then two years later, somebody tastes it. Goes, it's kind of light, <laughs> it's kind of thin. I'm like, well, look at me. You know, I didn't do that. That's what he gave me. But the pressure's on, and uh, you know, I tell him, look, I'm not a magician here. I can only do what I can do as carefully as I can. This old adage that the winemaker's just a babysitter in a lot of ways is true. That's not, you know. Because people always say, hey, winemaker, it must be a lot of chemistry. There's really very little chemistry. It's not chemistry. You know, it's agriculture. Mm. So everything that could possibly be done to make a better wine, and none of it's done by me. It's all done by out there. So how much do you work with the vineyard manager? The vineyard we work every day. We okay. talk every day. We look at every day. He'll pop in here every day. I'll drop it out there and see what's going on. Why don't we try a little spur pruning right here? Why don't we try this over there? Let's look at the boron level over this. Let's try a little bit of this. Let's turn off irrigation on there. I'm the customer for everything. I pay for every grape out there. So I should, uh, you know. Plus, the vineyard manager generally doesn't know what the grape goes into, whether it's a $10 bottle of wine or a $50 bottle of wine. Hmm. So, and, and so he's got to be, you know, you got to work very, very closely with that, not only with that person, but with that team, that whole team out there. So everybody that's doing something out there understands. Um, that there's another set of eyes on it that could come back and say, I saw this bug or these couple plants don't look quite right. Let's put a tag on them and watch them and things like that um, and reward them for things like that. You know, reward them for being intuitive and seeing something that nobody else sees or to, because you want them to be that geeky green thumb person. Mm. You know, green, you got to have a green thumb guy, you know, guy or girl out there. You know, it's, you can't be lucky. You got to be, got to be good at it. So we work with, you know, vineyard managers all work well together. You know, I started my career running the vineyard and the winery. So I did that for many years. I ran both. So I understand everything that goes on there. I know what it's like to have to go out, you know, spray, and then four days later have four inches of rain and go right out there and spray and cut the grass and prune and pick. So I know how it works. 
let's talk about how how you just how do you decide okay so so you mentioned the quality and okay this is this is a, a for this is more of a bargain wine this is more of a reserve wine how do you make that decision well what we did is so so when we wrote um when when richard and i decided hey i'm gonna do this project i'm gonna be part of this project so he said well i want to do a contract and i want to make it so you have an incentive to stay and i also at the same time said i want to make it um create a contract so he does what i think we need to do as an industry like i need to have the flexibility to do the grape council to do the wine growers and when i need richard to pick up the phone and make a phone call about something to influence somebody with a law or a funding or something like that that we need and he agreed to all that so we're fine um and also so i said that um, we want to um in our original contract, we said that at no time will the winery label more than 5% of its annual production as reserve. Hmm. And in a way, it's like, well, why would you do that? Why would you limit that? Uh, and, and, and really what, what you're doing is you're forcing a kind of psychological way to think of quality. And people would say, 5%, that's it? You know, and some people tell me they taste their wine and they say, Mark, why don't you just make... Just make these. Don't make any of that other stuff. Just make these. Well, it doesn't work that way. Trust me, which are good. You know, ideally, you know, a winery, you make less wine and charge more money. But it's not always the ability to do that. Plus, um, um, what you need to do is you need to create, you know, levels of customers. And so, for instance, if you take a red wine and you use brand new barrels or you do everything you do the vineyard, everything drives the cost up. So if you, let's say you take a cab and it's a mediocre cab at 19 bricks and you sell it for, you know, $14 a bottle, as opposed to a cab that you put in newer barrels and release in three more years and sell it at $30 bottles, $30, you may be making more money off that rosé because mm-hmm. your money's coming back fast. A lot of people don't see that. Oh, I didn't get $14 for it. They got no barrel. It goes into the bottle in, in April and you release it right away. So there are these things that we, we can do. Um, and, and so what we'll do is we'll, we'll make our wine and there's nothing better. I don't think than a customer that goes and tastes through the wine and says, or here's a reserve and then here's a black label, which is our, our, our varietal label. And we'll back blend, um, some of the, you know, higher in, and they feel like they're getting a better deal hmm. because this is just as good as that one, but it's like $10 a bottle. And that's how you win people. You thought, wow, my God, they took things. So, you know, we want to make them nice. Um, and so you have some people that really don't, you know, would never spend $35 on a bottle. So if they could taste something that's easier and simpler and nicer, and they're just as happy with that. I'm like that with like driving a car. You know, I don't need a Mercedes Benz, although I shouldn't say too loud because I work for a General Motors guy. <laughs> but, you know, and to me, it's as long as I get in there, I go, I'm pretty okay. And I listen, to, I listen to news radio, so I don't really need high fidelity. Um, so we want to make, uh, you know, a, a nice, nice, simple red wine or a nice, simple white wine as opposed to a big, full-bodied, bolder, heavier one. And, and I, think, I think a lot of people, I think um, people that drink a lot of wine, you know, people ask me, what do you drink? What do you drink? I said, well, if I'm having people over my house, I start with sparkler. Mm-hmm. Then you move to like a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Gris. Then you might move to a Chardonnay. Not that I mean, it's a heavy drinking thing, 
But you, then, you, then you, you know, and then you drink something else, and you drink something else, and then after dinner you have either port or you do. You know, it's experience. Yeah, it's the right. sharing of this. I'm sitting in a corner drinking by myself. So all the wines are important in levels. You know, you have to have levels. You have to have price points. You know. And, uh, it's and all about rounding out the business and, and making it more approachable for more people. It is. It is. It is. Because some people, like sometimes I'll come in in the weekend and I'll, uh, I'll stand in the foyer. And some people walk in I, and they know where they're going. Other people walk in and I see them. They're like, <laughs> they're looking. And it's a, it's a, it's a terrible feeling. Yeah, because right. they don't, they're, they're like, they finally came to a winery. You know, they're not wine people. But they finally came to a winery, and and you don't want to ruin it for them. You want them to come back. You want them to exactly. have an experience here and say, "My God, I was at Childress this weekend, and I w- I was there for five hours. Yeah. I, I I mean, and then I went outside and I, and I I got a bottle of wine and had the greatest time. In fact, when so and so comes into town, we're going to go there in two weeks, and you know that's what it's all about. That's customer service here, and let them feel good. You know, I think for many years wine has been so intimidating. It's so snobbish that we we, lo- we lost a lot of people. And they say, ah, hell, I'll just drink beer. And that's not good for us. No, no. <laughs> we want to drink wine. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So in, in a way, that's that's probably, you know, what, the, what's, what they have to do. You know, in a new region, people go to Napa, they just go around and drink a bunch of red wine. But here, there are a lot of day trippers. There are a lot of people that come out of Raleigh and, and Charlotte and, you know, groups of people. Food is also very important for the wine business. Anytime you can have food, uh, you know, it's, a, it's the opener that, that, sure, you know, that yeah. gets rid of the intimidation. And you do a little music and things like that. Oh, yeah. I think the key is, um, you know, that wine has to be the number one in a winery. I think as soon as somebody builds a winery, I talked to a, a, some investors a couple of weeks ago, and they want to build a facility. They said, oh, we just want to have it like look like we make wine, and then we're going to do all this stuff. And I said, I'm not. I don't want, I'm not want any part of that, you know, it's just the wrong approach. So speaking of that, what would be some advice that you would have for people who are looking to get into the industry, whether it's starting to work at a winery or a vineyard or want to purchase one or want to open one of their own? Yeah, I think that, you know, that the, the, the hardest part is that the learning curve comes at you really, really fast. And that if any way they can somehow get immersed in it, um, for instance, we do all these wine growers association things where we do, and people don't show up. And then so many people call me and say, hey, I need to do this and this. And I say, well, we just had that big seminar. We talked, like we talk everything about the music licensing. Mm-hmm. And I don't tell you how many people call me and say, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? And, and I'm like, we just, we're, you know, they, it's, it's right there before they're in, right in front of them. Or people that never come to the wine growers show. To me, that that's the biggest source of information and knowledge you know if people are going to get into the business you got to get in it you got to learn it mm-hmm. or you got to hire somebody if you want to do it yourself i think it's a wonderful business if they don't do it themselves if not you got to hire somebody that at least knows what they're doing or is either as a consultant or whatever to to push you forward because once you open the doors it's not like well they're kind of new so we'll cut them some slack they will people will cut you know slack it's like going to a restaurant if, if it's not right and the bathrooms are dirty and the service is not there, it's not there. doesn't matter what they – now, you can mitigate that by, you know, eye contact and being a nice person and doing the right things, but you can't make it go away. Sure. So I think, you know, I, um, I think it's it, – you know, I, I can't imagine there's a better business out there than the wine business. Because like I said, you get the agriculture, you get the, the production end of it, you get the social end of it, the culinary and all that. There's so many angles to it. And uh, – 
and it's very rewarding and done the right way, it's profitable. But, yeah, and it, but, com- it comes together and it's a whole experience. And pe- it's, it's a very memorable experience for those that come and yeah. take it. Yeah, they have a good time. They have a good time. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And it's like, wow, I got to come back. I, I, you know, sometimes I'll go, you know, through on the weekends and I'll see the same people here and the same. And I'm thinking to my God, I come here every weekend. But you know what? They're having a good time. They're having their friends in. Right. You know, what are you going to sit at home if you're not into gardening or you're not going to go to the beach? They'll just sit, have a drink, sit outside. Yeah. And, and entertain with their friends. And, and I thought, gosh, we're doing, hopefully we're doing the right thing. Until I see them drinking a wine arena. And then I go, oh, come on. No. Well, you know, that's no, refreshing on a, on a hot day. It is, it yeah, is. And absolutely. I don't mind it. I just joke about it. I'm like, holy smoke. Hey, paying customer, right? Yeah. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thanks so much. So, What's on our agenda today? Today, we've got a fun one. Rotundones. Rotundones. I don't know. Okay. Rotundones. I'm not sure if I'm putting the right emphasis on the syllables there, but <laughs> <laughs> um, Rotundone, we'll go with that. Yeah, so this is a, a subspecies, if you will, or a, another kind of terpene. So we've talked about terpenes before, and this, so this is a more specific one. And this is, a, this is found in the essential oils of black pepper, marjoram, oregano, rosemary, thyme, and basil. Hmm. And it gives a really classic peppery aroma that, if you're in the 75% that we'll get to in a minute, you've probably tasted in some really good red wines. Okay. So, spoiler alert right there. Well, we do like a good spicy red wine, so that's a good thing. So, tell us a little bit more about Rotundones. All right, so these are sesquiterpenes, and they were originally discovered in the tubers of a type of grass called java grass. And it's present in, like I said, this essential oils of black pepper, some of these really common spices that are probably growing in many gardens across the world, <laughs> but Mediterranean, um, but also here in North Carolina, you know, I've got oregano out in my garden. But these essential oils are also present in some Syrah wines. And they impart a really nice peppery aroma. So this carries the chemical formula of C15, so 15 carbon atoms, uh, H22, 22 hydrogens, and O, so one oxygen. And sesqua, that prefix, here's my little deep dive, means one and a half. Um, we're kind of talking about that, those 15 carbons that are present. So if you're wondering where that sesquiterpene name came from. <laughs> That is the nomenclature behind that. Um, but this is a new one to wine science. It was only identified in 2008. Really? Yeah. Wow. And it was identified as the main contributor to that black pepper aroma in wine. And since then, it's been found in many grape varieties. And it's kind of, I don't know, the new new kid on the block. Well. Cool. It was just yeah. sitting there right in front of us the whole time. <laughs> Who knew? But, oh, thanks for that segue. So one of the most fascinating things about this, um, is that about 20 to 25% of the general population is anosmic to it, which means they cannot detect the scent of it. Really? It just doesn't, like, their noses and their brains don't detect it at all. Mm. Wow. Which is wild to me. They're missing out. I know. 
Totally. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more, kind of more of that um, and how that impacts tasting. And I don't know, it's just kind of very fascinating. But in general, it's really a positive perception in those 75% to 80% that can perceive it. Like there's no higher upper limit or really lower limit on there. It's just a nice positive trait if you can detect it. I mean, I for one enjoy that in a wine, so mm-hmm. I think it is a very positive trait. Yeah. It's also one of the most potent odorants or aromas that's been identified in wine. I, I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, as I often do, but the odor threshold is pretty low. So 8 nanograms per liter in water or 16 nanograms per liter in red wine. Hmm. But if you think about those the 20 to 25% of the population that can't detect it, they're going to get a whole different experience than others who can detect it in the same glass of wine. It's wild. I'm really hung up on that. (laughs) (laughs) They don't know what they're missing. (laughs) (laughs) Except they, yeah, I don't know. So tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the rotundones and the winemaking process then. So, This is a primary aroma, so it's in the grapes themselves. Rotundone is produced in the berry skin, and it's they've seen its concentration levels different among differ among varieties and even differ among different Shiraz clones or Syrah. A lot of the research we found was from Australia, so they're calling it Shiraz, but we know that's Syrah. (laughs) So the rotundone is extracted into the juice when, you know. They're crushed and processed and ultimately turned to wine during fermentation. Um, It's also rotundone is present in grapevine leaves and stems. And so if those are added to the fermentation process, which is rare, I don't know many people that do that, but the rotundone concentration can be increased up to sixfold compared to just fermenting the berries. So that could be a fun experiment Mm -hmm. trick. Well, I guess that makes sense, too, because if you think of like whole cluster and then uh, people who are adding in, you know, more of those twigs and, and potentially the leaves, that kind of adds just more of that complexity to it. So rotundones at work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And so as far as in the vineyard, some of the studies uh, we saw, they, we, they've seen higher concentrations of rotundone in berries produced by high vigor grapevines and in seasons with, you know, good water availability and in the grape bunches closer to the leaves. So, you know, higher shade, lower temperatures. They, we see this rotundone more frequently in cool climates. The cool climate Syrahs. Interesting. Okay. Something to look for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just, you know, we talked about it smelling like black pepper, but it is, you know, the exact same flavor compound that you find in peppercorns. And it's pretty cool that it's it survives fermentation and aging and anything else you do in the winery to the wine that compound from the grape just lasts through it all mm-hmm. yeah that is interesting now with a lot of our other compounds we've talked about how they kind of dissipate or disappear with age does this one kind of do the same or does this one kind of linger on and just stick around yeah from what we've seen this one kind of lingers on and sticks around mm-hmm. it's not really one that's gonna bind with things or or change much but the study we read said that none of the winemaking techniques that they studied proved to be effective in enhancing rotundone. So, mm. I mean, though we did just talk about how you, you know, crush and ferment, but 
as far as like the winemaking process, you know, beyond the fermentation, none of that really made a difference. Hmm. So you either have it or you don't. Yeah. The biggest part is in, in the vineyard, you know, the cool, wet vintages are favorable for having higher rotundum levels. And then, you know, Syrah's the grape that has the most of it as well. So it is definitely a, an aroma that is more associated with Syrah. Well, and, um, kind of a follow-up to that research study was how climate change may impact that because there are, uh, you know, as Jess was mentioning, the cool, wet climate. Well, is that going to still exist? <laughs> you know, and uh, if it's not there, it's not there. And we yeah. can't really do much to uh, to change it in the viticulture process, in the winemaking. I mean, so. Yeah, the wet climate might, but the cool one may not. Yeah. Yeah. Depends. Who knows? Hmm. Yeah, and the last thing they found with, you know, the vineyard is that later harvest dates are key. The, like, the formation of the precursor to rotundone, which I can't even begin to pronounce. So it only commences after veraison. Um, so you're not going to get anything if you harvest too early. So, you know, the whole process of the grape creating rotundone happens after veraison. Interesting. I was going to say more, but I just, I can't think of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm about to not say much when we get to aroma and taste because <laughs> this one is very straightforward. Yeah. We're getting so narrow in our aromas that this is peppercorn. So that is your aroma and taste for this mm -hmm. compound. Well, at least that makes it easy to identify though. So you can't mm -hmm. be thinking like, oh, well, is this, you know, something else? Is this some sort of fruity banana type thing <laughs> or, or some other elusive thing? And it's like, well, no, this is, right. this is definitely pepper. <laughs> and is it specifically the black pepper or is it sometimes the red of the green pepper? I mean, I know we've talked about methoxypyrazines yeah. being the, the green pepper. I, so we've also, yeah, seen it. Sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, no, but um, like pink peppercorn, some of those er Mediterranean herbs. Yeah. So that's something to distinguish is this isn't like the bell pepper aroma. Mm -hmm. This is like the ground black pepper, peppercorn. And it can be like we've seen pink peppercorn and stuff, but it is different from the bell pepper aroma. Very interesting. But again, very identifiable for mm -hmm. 75 to 80% of the population. <laughs> <laughs> right. I wonder if, if and when they will be able to identify a gene that this is connected to. Yeah, like there's also genes, you know, where you cilantro might taste like soap so, to you yeah. or might taste yeah. good or you can smell asparagus or you can't. Um, so, yeah, it's kind well, of fascinating. In that study, you know, Jess had mentioned that, it, you know, the threshold is four nanograms per liter. The, the folks that, you know, couldn't smell it, they tested it in water over 4,000 nanograms per liter and they still couldn't wow. get it. So it's definitely like a you can or you can't thing. There's no threshold, you know. Hmm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. So how would we how would we pair this with foods then? Well, this one is pretty straightforward and basic, but playing up that peppercorn aspect and thinking about what you pair at Syrah or Shiraz with, but spare ribs, a nice duck, first duck maybe, mm -hmm. some really nice aged hard cheeses could stand against this or a braised beef dish to kind of go against and play with that peppercorn aspect. I can see that. I know we just mentioned uh, mushrooms in our previous segment, but again, 
mushrooms are so versatile and you like mushrooms with pepper. So why not just sprinkle mm. on some rotundone in there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just got to thinking of like a tuna steak or something that Ooh. has like a pepper mm. crust on it. It would yep. be really good. Like some sesame. T- yeah. Pepper crusted. I like that. I can see that. And I'm getting hungry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very cool. Well, anything else about rotundones that you'd like to impart? I'm trying to think of a pun, but it's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think we are rotundone with this one. <laughs> I like it. Well, Jesse and Jessica, <laughs> this has been very fun again. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now back to the show. So what are some of the things that you think are, are, are challenge, possible challenges to the wine industry? Climate, the grape growing obviously are difficulties, but are there other outside things that you feel like might be uh, things the wine industry needs to think about and try to? Well, the the thing that the 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 biggest detriment to the wine people, the wine industry, is people getting in it and and not understanding that they have to do the they have to do the time. There's a certain amount of time before we're we're legitimately accepted. You know, everybody says, oh, we should get a wine spectator down here, and these restaurants should be carrying our wine. We should have everybody carrying our wine. Yes, they should. I, should, I believe that. But you, it's a business, and you have to give them a certain amount of quality, a certain amount of price. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So over time, like if you go to the like Long Island now, uh, Long Island's been there for 35 years, 40 years, and now the level of quality is up. And there's enough of that camaraderie. When we first started growing grapes on Long Island, you couldn't get a, a restaurant to carry the wine. It just right, wouldn't happen. We don't want it. It was an improving thing. It was an improving thing, exactly. So it's not who, like I said, who made good wine this year, it's who makes good wine every year. So a lot of people, do, you know, and, and I explained to that to them, we need the track record. You need to be doing it for long enough. You need to be patient. Napa didn't get it until 1976. Right. My God, how long did they make wine? Mm-hmm. Um, so little by little... Um, you know, we just got to kind of do it. And, and that's what people don't understand. I always say that, you know, to people. They say, well, you know, I said, you just need to keep going. And well, I don't have the time. I can't wait to find it. Well, it's not, a, it's not going to happen otherwise. Yeah. I mean, few did. Washington State did. Washington State came on all of a sudden and boom, they went forward. I, you know, but it's not, it's a hard thing to, uh, to track. Tra- weather will always be a challenge, whether it's climate change or there isn't climate change or it's man-made or whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter but weather will always be, you know, just like growing your tomatoes in your garden. Sure. It's, it's always going to be the challenge or the frost or the freeze or the cold or, or the you know, hail, whatever it may be. So you just got to gotta get out there and learn how to, how to manipulate it. But it's not the end all. You know, you could have, you know, poorer quality uh, growing years. You're just not going to make reserve wines. But there are certain there are lots of other great wines you can make out there. It's not like you, like you said, you're not going out of business. You move forward, make those style of wines, and move, move, move it ahead. Make wonderful wines. I mean, champagne is a perfect example of that. You can't get, the champagne is the shortest growing season of any major wine-growing region in the world at 145 days. Hmm. I mean, to fully ripen Cabernet, you need like 200 days. Yeah. 
So my gosh, I mean, here's champagne, they make wonderful product. Yeah. Expensive, at a high price. So I think that, you know, that's that's our challenge. Culturally, and it's slowly st- slowly changing, um, that, but North Carolina has, uh, you know, if you measure the education level of the population, and you, consu- you look at your, your wine consumers, you know, we have a lot of higher level education in North Carolina, which is, and, we're, and it's a state people are moving to. So I see the future as being fantastic for going into the future. Nice. I think we got plenty of room. It's all about it's all about keeping that quality up and, and, and understanding your customer and creating that experience. And, and getting your, your, your team and training your team and building what I would call a legitimate professional wine culture. And build that really professional wine culture here, like I think what you guys are doing. You know, it's not specifically the winery and the vineyard workers and the and that, but it's it's the it's the fabrication, it's the refrigeration producers, it's the people that are doing our uh, doing our branding and our labeling. All that builds that culture, that culture of yeah. quality, that culture of experience and and knowledge. That a new industry doesn't have, mm-hmm. you know, that you slowly got to groom that, and in and these associations, and and our our ability to work together with other crafts, with the cheese people, with the chocolate people, with the bread people, I mean, all that stuff. If you go to Europe, that's the advantage that they have. Yeah. They have a much better lifestyle here, where you go on a million miles a minute, you know, and you know, and, and we we we're, we're gonna miss it. Yeah, when we first got here, we were on the crush pad. You were talking about how much logistics are involved in wine and winemaking. It's not just the winemaking. It's the industry. Like it's the industry. You mentioned every single piece of that. That's yeah. that's logistics. You have to plan it out. You have to make sure you have all that. So It's the big circle. Oh, yes. So earlier you mentioned great wine, and I'm just curious. Mm-hmm. You've been making wine for a while now. What has been your favorite wine that you ever made? Well, one of my favorite wines that I did, a, I won a Governor's Cup in 1986 for a late harvest Gewürztraminer, and I still have two bottles left. Holy cow. So eventually I'm going to open those last two bottles, <laughs> but it's a late harvest, so in a way. You know, I don't, I don't know if I have a favorite. I have wines that I'm very sad when we sell the last of them, mm. you know, because you remember those. You're like, people, we had one we did in uh, 2010, <clears throat> and, and so we're harvesting grapes in 2010. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was very hot and very dry, and the season was going on and on. We let it let it hang a little bit. And looked at the weather forecast, and we got you know five days. So we said, all right, let's pick towards the end of the week. And you get towards the end of the week, and you look, and it's five more days. Nice sun, nothing. Let's wait a little bit longer. Let's wait a little bit longer. <clears throat> so we're picking Merlot, and we were going out there doing sampling. It was just really looking good. So we hung out as long as they said, all right, we're going to have four days of rain. So we held out the last minute. So well, let's go out there and pick. We brought it in. And the grapes are coming in. And we, we do a little bit of sampling. But sampling is only necessary if, if, if you know, when you get close. When you get to the end, you're like, well, it could hang, it could hang, it could hang. And then it really doesn't matter. You pull it the last minute. Mm-hmm. And so we brought these grapes in, and, uh, and we were getting really high numbers. Everything was 24 bricks, 25 bricks. So we brought this one Merlot in. It was like 28.2 bricks. Ooh. I was like, holy smokes, man. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and had a little bit of botrytis in it, but nothing that was real bad. So, I mean, Richard came by, and he's all excited. Well, look at the grapes, because he's, he's as excited as we are. And he's like, holy smoke. What are you? He said, uh, it's, alcohol might be too high. He said, what are we going to do? And I said, we're just going to ferment it out. He said, you don't think the alcohol will be too high? You want to put some water in it or something like that? 
I said, Richard, we're not going to see 28 bricks for a long time. This is going to be whatever it's going to be. So anyway, we fermented it out, and uh, we, we, we put it all in new oak. And it was just beautiful, dark, and, used to, and everybody calls it Monster Merlot because mm. it was just big. You know, the cab was came in around 25, but Merlot, and it was, Merlot in areas like this can often get riper, riper than cab. Yeah. And Franc was good. All the reds were really good, but this Monster Merlot, and it was just this big thing. It was just crazy. And it was like 16.2 alcohol at the end. I said, why you leave it at 16.2? What's not? Ain't going to see it again too soon. Right. No, exactly. And then when we... You put some ice in later. So. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we did it. And we, we kept some. I kept some. You know, we got library samples that we do for dinners, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, but I was kind of sorry to see that one go. Because it was so unique, you know. Yeah. And in a way, it proves that, you know, and I think, you know, over time, one of our advantages it, it, here is that we do have this continental climate and we have these seasons that make it very different from year to year, which makes it very memorable. It's not like every year yeah, is the same exactly. year. It's not homogenous. It's we're more like like Bordeaux, if not, not comparing itself to Bordeaux, but in that we get the ups and downs, and that's what makes it so cool. Well, yeah, you mentioned fifteen. Earlier. Yeah, fifteen was great. Nineteen was good. Yeah. You know, so we're hoping this year. Now yeah, we're we're almost like past that point. This could be another you know hope. Yeah. Right. We always have hope. Absolutely. So we're hoping that's going to do that. So continuing in the theme of looking back, what would you say you've um, has left the biggest impact on you since coming here to Childress? Well, yeah, the, 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 my, my thing that I, um, well, there's a few things. One is that from a physiological point of view, <clears throat> um, I was always amazed at two, two things to do with the growing of the grapes. One is that uh, the grapes have usually um, much more body than I would think we would get out of a wine. Because ten, if we can get into a certain ripeness level here, we we do have an advantage in that because it's because of the soil and minerality is that we can have a, a fairly good body to the wine. A lot of places you can get ripe, but then the wines are thin. Mm. So here we got this viscosity to it. That's always it was always amazing to me. Uh, the other thing that's amazing to me is the ripeness level uh, uh, of how where the physiological ripeness of the whites are before they have varietal character, which is much earlier than a, than a lot of other places. Those are the two things. Uh, from the cultural standpoint, um, I'm, I'm very pleased that, um, that we get so much support for the wine business from, let's say, NC State, UNCG, Surrey Community College, um, politicians, um, the industry, people like yourselves that want to incorporate into the wine industry. That doesn't always happen. You know, it's usually you have the wine guy, you know, people, and then, and then there are the other industries or whatever. I mean, we're a little bit behind from a culinary standpoint, and so we're trying to, you know, incorporate more things in to get culinary involved. Uh, but, you know, th those are the things that I look back on that kind of surprised me. That and frost. The frost I didn't see coming. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> No one ever does. No, it's like, yeah, we'll live with that. We'll, we'll work around that. So we talked a lot about what the future of the wine industry looks like itself. Where do you personally want North Carolina wine to go? To beat Virginia. <laughs> it's just a personal thing. Okay. You know, Virginia's been way ahead of us. <clears throat> I think Virginia has, a, has more uh, small individual uh, higher-end investment. Uh, but I think competition is a good thing. So we, you know, we'd like to, you know, like to move ahead. You know, when Garden Gun did that that article, it just bugged me. 
who will make the iconic Southern wine. And I thought, well, we're here, we should do it. You know, it shouldn't be Virginia. Mm-hmm. You know, so we want to push ahead of, of Virginia. You know, Virginia's had an advantage. You know, Thomas Jefferson got them on a much earlier start. But now we're going we're to start to see more investment here. Um, and, and our climates are similar. I mean, we are similar to Virginia. It's not like we're way different or they're way different. So, uh, uh, you know, it's like Napa and Sonoma. You know, I, was, I did a, a seminar out there many, many years ago, and I was, there was a, um, two you know, different winemakers from Napa and winemakers from Sonoma. And the Napa guy, you know, right away, he said, who's this guy? He said, they grow, they grow grapes on the other side of these mountains? <laughs> <laughs> and it's good to have a rivalry. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, whether you poke fun at it, um, I think it's, it's good. So I'd like to see us move ahead. I'd like to see, you know, now that we have a couple more AVAs, I'd like to see this as a sustained industry here that we leave behind. And then for the next hundred years, it grows forward and grow different grapes. But, it, you know, it becomes, uh, I think our economic impact is well over $2 billion now. I'd like to see that continue to grow um, and see all these little wineries, you know, go on and employ people and people pay their mortgages and, you know, and everybody's in that search. <coughs> Winemaking or the search for wine is like, you know, you remember the movie Sideways. And I think it's all about, it's like fishing. You know, it's, it's not catching the fish. That's the best part. It's waiting to catch the fish. That's the best part. So you're always in search of that, you know, tasting that wine and trying another flavor. You know, like I said, winemakers are not like, it's not like Budweiser where you know what you're going to get every time. Mm-hmm. As you go and say, ooh, let me try that. Ooh, let me try that. Let's see how this, I remember your one last year. Let's try this one this year. And, it, and it's different. And I think that's what makes it really kind of cool. You know, it's the search. Like Miles, he was holding on to that bottle forever. He ended up <laughs> drinking the paper cup. <laughs> Drink with what you got, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so we're kind of winding down on the questions here. But one thing we, we typically like to kind of end with or kind of have toward the end is, um, what do you want a customer to know when they're opening a bottle of Childers wine or when they're coming here to the vineyard? What do you want them to know and what would you want them to expect? That's kind of a tough question. I don't know. I, you know, I just want them to, you know, I think that it's with most people I know over time, they, that when they, when they put a, a wine glass to their lips, they just say, is, do I like it? Because if somebody buys a, a bottle of wine for $5 and it's crap, they lose $5. Then they're pretty upset. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so whatever the price point is, you want them to, to you know, to drink it and, Hopefully, think about it. Certain people don't think about it. They just go and they're on the conversation. So hopefully, they think about it. You know, wine is from a place. So I'd like to think about this is a feature of this place, you know, you know where, <coughs> and that it's, a, it's somewhat different and, and well-made, you, you would hope to think, you know. But I don't know. Philosophically, that's a tough question. <laughs> it always is. And we always like hearing the answers to it. So that's fun. Well, Mark, we thank you for your time, and we thank you for what you do at Childress, thank and we also thank you for what you do for the industry in North Carolina, appreciate it. as well as, as Richard as well. I mean, obviously, this industry is elevated because of folks like you and folks like Richard, and so it's very important that more people uh, fill those roles as you would. No, thanks for the invitation. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks once again to Mark for hosting us for this interview. We had a great time visiting Childress, and the conversation was great as always. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. 
It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NCYGuys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers. is a free-run LLC production. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.